Welcome back to Grazia Life Advice. I'm Lottie Jeffs. Thanks so much for joining us. In this episode, we've got some excellent and quite spiritual advice from an award-winning author. Hi, I'm Ruth Ozeki, and I am a novelist and a filmmaker and also a Zen Buddhist priest. And I'm also this week's guest on Grazia Life Advice podcast. Ruth Ozeki tells us about making meditation work for her. And then there are times where I'm just busy and frustrated and, you know, angry and, you know, meditating becomes difficult. But rather than just stopping and not doing it at all, I I lower the bar and think, well, if I can't meditate for 40 minutes, then, you know, how about five? Ruth gives me some tips on how to apologize to my four-year-old daughter. Often, you know, in my mind, the apology is... I'm sorry, and then the unspoken part is, you feel that way. But I try not to say that part. And I try to say the first part with as much, you know, sincerity as I can. And finally, Ruth gives us some advice for writing boldly. Advice which I think works for any creative project. You're a writer, don't ask for permission. You know, you give yourself permission, write it, and then if it's good, you'll convince me. As a writer, you can't give anybody that authority over your process. All of that, plus trespassing, finding writing inspiration, and punishing your Fitbit. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties, and you might notice my audio isn't great, but Ruth's advice was so good, we really wanted to share the episode with you anyway. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with Ruth. Hi, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Lottie. It's been a week almost since you won the Women's Prize. Is that right? I think that's about right. It seems, uh, yeah, uh, so much has happened this past week. It's it's hard to believe after, you know, nothing, yeah, nothing happened for two years during the pandemic, right? And then suddenly, <laughs> you know, all of this happens. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. It's very, it's, it. Is it quite hard it, to adjust to that level of sort of, social interaction again. It it is, um, especially, you know, I mean, the life of a novelist is really boring. Um, At least mine is. I mean, maybe I shouldn't speak for all novelists, but, you know, when I'm writing a book, I don't really do much uh, except for write. And that's what I've been doing for the last eight years, writing and teaching, because I also teach. And and then the book goes out into the world and, and suddenly one is expected to actually use one's voice to speak to other people. <laughs> so it is a little bit surprising. <laughs> yeah, I can so imagine. Um, and you're here to talk <laughs> more um, to us today about your life advice. Um, so I'm really excited to get into it and particularly because of your Buddhist teachings. Sure. So let's crack on. And your first, your first piece of advice, Ruth, is to do no harm. Yes. This is a foundational piece of advice, a precept, an intention in Buddhism. Um, And the Sanskrit word is ahimsa. It's uh, also translated as nonviolence. And it was the core teaching for Mahatma uh, Mahatma Gandhi's um, nonviolent resistance, um, which then, of course, became uh, Martin Luther King's practice as well when he was doing all of the civil rights activism in in the United States. So it's a very foundational 
piece of advice. And what is interesting about it is, to me anyway, is that um, it, it's kind of impossible, right? It's an impossible vow. There's no way to be a human being on earth and not do harm to something, you know, uh, or someone or some living being, right? Um, and so in that sense, it's it's really impossible to do it perfectly, which makes it um, which makes it interesting to me because it keeps it alive. It's something that I, I think about when I'm getting ready to do something, um, when I'm getting ready to publish a book, for example. Uh, I, I think about this vow, this intention. And, um, you know, often there's nothing I can do. You know, one can't anticipate all the time. But at the same time, it's a kind of guideline. I suppose that's really it more than anything else. Mm. Can you give an example of something in sort of everyday life that you might be thinking, do no harm? You know, is it from choosing not to kill a moth? Yes, exactly. You know, choosing not to kill a moth. We have to cohabit somehow on this planet with all of these these other beings. And um, moths and insects are are a hugely important part of our ecosystem you know, just because the moth is, is in my space, or for example, a, a you know, mm. a kitchen fly is another, you know, example, something that's a little bit more annoying to think about, you know, to think about, oh no, this is a, this is an important part of our ecosystem. And, um, is there another way I can, I can deal with, I'm the one that's having a problem. So is there, you know, a way that I can deal with this, that, that, you know, that does no harm. Another example might be, you know, I mean, how many times do we, you know, unthinkingly complain about people, for example, you know, and, you know, is that, is that really necessary? You know, of course it's fun <laughs> to complain and sometimes it's harmless to complain, but often, you know, by complaining about somebody to a friend whom you both know, you know, does, does that, does that create a situation where, you know, it puts your friend into a compromised position next time, you know, she sees that person, you know, just, just little things, you know, mm. little, little, uh, little things like that. As I said before, there's no way to be perfect, right? There's no way to do it. There's no way to be perfect about this. You know, I mean, I blow it all the time, but it, it, it is, it just gives me pause. Um, mm. And and so it's a useful practice that way when I remember to do it. And then very often, of course, I forget. So, And then following on from, from that, your next piece of advice, I think, kind of goes some way to thinking of how we can kind of continue to do no harm in these examples you've given, which is don't get angry, get curious. Yeah, this is an interesting one. You know, I have always had, ever since I was quite young, uh, a real problem with anger. I, I am quick to anger. I also have a very uneasy relationship with my anger. I, I'm kind of afraid of it, and I don't like it at all. You know, and so this is something that I've been aware of, you know, ever since I was a child. I think when I was, when I was little, I really suppressed my anger. Um, anger was not okay in my household. And so I, you know, I really repressed my anger. Um, and, and so it, it would build, mm. right? And, and so this is something that, you know, once I, once I grew up, I, I started to realize, wow, this is, this is a real problem for me. Anger is a real problem for me. I never really learned how to, deal with anger in a wholesome way. Uh, and, and so I naturally started to get curious about it. And I found that 
when I got curious about my anger and when I started thinking, you know, wow, what is making me so angry? And why am I reacting this way? You know, when I could, when I could activate the curiosity just ahead of the anger, it diffused the anger itself and made the anger somehow workable. Mm. Right. And so this, this became something I started to try to consciously do. And I think it was even before I was practicing Buddhism seriously. It, it just became a bit of a little bit of a habit. And I liked it because it was effective for me. You know, it, it allowed me to just have that moment, moment pause before I sort of went into anger when I, before I went into rage. Now, again, you know, this all sounds great. You know, it's very easy for me to sit here, you know, in this, you know, in front of my computer and, and, you know, talk about these things. Um, it, it's much harder in the moment. Um, but still, it is something that I, uh, am aware of and I do try to practice, you know, whenever I can. Sometimes, mm. of course, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. I'm really interested in anger and what makes us angry and whether it's mm. the big stuff. Or the sort of yeah. small stuff like a, for me, uh, a cashier who's taking an insanely long time to complete a transaction drives me insane <laughs> and makes me so angry. I totally get it. I, you know, I was in line at a coffee shop the other day and there was this family with, you know, four very young children ahead of me. I really needed that cup of coffee and the children were trying to decide what flavor yogurt they wanted. Mm. And this was, you know, this was at, this was at, you know, 7.30 in the morning and I, you know, had an interview or something I needed to get to. So, so those moments are, are just, are difficult. But on the other hand, the children were, were very cute. And, and then I sort of got curious about why they were, you know, wanting, they, they suddenly needed to know what boysenberry was. And that, that seemed really funny to me. <laughs> oh my God, I would have been um, pulling my hair out. So but yes, was, I see your point. I know, exactly. I well, I was, yeah. <laughs> that is great advice. Yeah. Yeah. The thing too, is that as a novelist, you know, as a novelist, this is, this is, you know, it's important for me to listen to things like a child asking what boysenberry is, you know, at that particular moment. Um, mm. You know, this, this is material. I can use it. And so, you know, I have an ulterior motive too for getting curious because it's, it's stuff that I can store away and use later, you know, in, in writing. Ruth, please, could you share with us your third piece of life advice? Yes, my third piece of life advice is always have a project, something you're working on. For me, this means uh, a writing project. I'm never really happy unless I have something that I'm actively working on. It can be something very small. It can be, you know, fiction, nonfiction. It doesn't really matter, but I, I need to have something. The time when I'm really happiest and sort of most settled is when I have a novel uh, project underway. And this is a, this is a piece of advice that I, I, you know, give my students, I find it's especially helpful when uh, somebody is, you know, in a state of not crisis exactly, but really feeling at odds with the world um, to have some kind of project. Um, and it can be something like, I don't know, learning how to how to cook a new recipe or, or getting rid of books or, you know, a kind of life maintenance project mm. that that works too. But it's just a question of having a focus. Yes, because I was going to ask why? Like, what's what do you get from having a, a project, do you think? I think it just gives me something to focus on. 
And so, you know, in those moments when, for example, I might find myself sinking into a bit of depression or just finding myself at loose ends, uh, it gives me something to turn to. It, it uh, you know, I remember, oh, right, you know, I'm, I'm you know, in the process of uh trying to you know get rid of my you know get rid of books that I you know that I'm no longer mm. interested in or you know I'm trying to you know read all of the books on the booker shortlist or you know whatever it is it just gives me something to you know to return to and that's really that's really helpful and do you ever get to the point where you have too many projects and they become <laughs> stressful um, I, I, I do. Well, what happens is that very often I'll forget what project I'm in the middle of, right? And then, you know, I'll, I'll think, oh, well, you know, I need a new project. And so then I, I, I find something else. And then suddenly I realize, like, yes, I've got too many open loops. Of course, that happens, you know. And, and that's, I think, why for me, the most successful projects are really writing projects. Because once I've locked into a writing project, I tend not to forget it because it's important and it, it really consumes my, you know, my mind. The other thing about the, about writing projects that are, is so wonderful for me is that when I'm, you know, in line at the cashier, for example, right, and, and the cashier is taking an incredibly long time, I can return to the writing project in my mind. It's almost like the project has a little room in my mind. And so I can sort of check out of the, the cashier line and go into the little writing room in my mind and hang out there. It's just a, a little yes. area to escape to. I love that. And it's made me realize that I fill all of those moments with Instagram. And <laughs> yes, that that's I, right. if I didn't do, if I didn't just feel that sensation of like momentary boredom and reach for my phone, if I just kept my phone in my pocket and actually thought about something or a project yeah. I would yeah. be so much more uh, productive happy yeah everything yeah, yeah. I, I think it's like a little space you know it's like this little space that's all your own and nobody else knows that you're there and it's really wonderful we are just going to jump to a quick ad break but we will be right back with Ruth Ozeki and we are back with Ruth Ozeki, who is sharing her life advice with us today. And we're on to her fourth piece of life advice, which is don't ask for permission unless you want to be told no. <laughs> Give me an example, please. All right. Well, I find that many of my students, particularly the women, and, and these are writing students, they seem to be waiting for permission to do the, you know, whatever writing they, they want to do. And of course, it is school, right? It's university. So, and I'm the teacher. So they come to me and ask for permission to do whatever. And I immediately tell them, no, 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 don't, you're a writer, don't ask for permission. You know, you give yourself permission and, and then write it. And then if it's, you know, if it's good, and if you've worked really hard, you'll convince me. Right. But if you ask permission, you know, it gives me the latitude to tell you no. And nobody should tell you no. You know, mm. you, as a writer, you, you have to you can't give anybody that authority over your process, including your teacher. 
Right. Um, and so uh, this seems really important to me, um, certainly for writers, but I also think it's important for citizens. Um, and the example I'll give here is uh, lived in Canada, in a remote island um, in Canada for, for many, many years. And um, the piece of land right next to us was owned by a large logging company. And uh, they logged it, but there were still quite a few nice trees still left. And we decided that we wanted to have it as a park for the community, a commons. And so what we did was we, uh, we started making bandit trails through the, this large forest. And of course, as soon as you make a trail, people start to use the trail, right? And then when people start to use the trails, it becomes their land, right? Um, and, so that was how we, we got community engagement um, and got members of the community in there so that they would start to feel a sense of ownership over this land and would support us, support the movement when it came time to raise the money and, and get this place turned into a, a commons, into a park. Now, if we, had, if we had gone to the logging company and asked for permission to build these trails, of course they would have said, no, this is private property. You know, you're not even allowed to step foot on it. But we didn't do that. Um, instead, we, we just went ahead and, and made the trails and invited people in. And, um, and now it's a, it's a beautiful um, park. Do you think it takes a certain confidence or life experience to be the person that is up for ostensibly breaking the rules? And is that maybe why some of your students are feeling like they're not secure enough in their place in the world yet to be able to try an alternative. I think that is true. I think we've been socialized, you know, to obey the rules and to defer to authority. There's another piece of advice, question authority. You know, mm. no, nothing is automatically legitimate. And just because, a, you know, one group has the power does, I mean, I'm thinking now of the Supreme Court of the United States, you know, they have the power, but they are not automatically legitimate. And so I think that, you know, questioning the authority and pushing back is our civic duty. Absolutely. Your fifth piece of advice is work harder than you ever dreamed possible. And when you get discouraged, lower the bar. That's right. I love that. <laughs> you know, it's not just when you get discouraged, when you stop having fun. You know, work harder than you ever dreamed possible. And when you get discouraged or when you stop having fun, you know, lower the bar until it becomes fun again. Again, we're kind of conditioned to always be raising the bar. And sometimes that's not the way to get through. You know, sometimes, you know, you just need to keep lowering the bar, you know, and, and making making something easier and easier and easier until it actually becomes enjoyable again. And then you don't have to force yourself to do it. Then you do it because it's it's you know, it's pleasure. And I find this to be true, certainly with writing, um, but also with things like, you know, with meditation. Mm. Uh, you know, there are times when I, you know, when I just love meditating, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's fun and it's enjoyable, it's relaxing, you know, I'm in a good place. And then there are times where I'm just busy and frustrated and, you know, angry and, you know, meditating becomes difficult, right? But rather than just stopping and not doing it at all, I, I lower the bar and, and yeah. think, well, you know, if I can, I can't meditate for 40 minutes, then, you know, how about five? 
I think that's great. I have, yeah, it resonates for me in terms of exercise and feeling like I need to do exercise every day and then feeling really bad if I don't and then actually thinking, do you know what? It's okay. And I'm just going to take off my Fitbit. And so it's (laughs) buzzing me and making me feel bad about myself. And that realization, I think, is quite important. I think so too. I think that's really, that's, that's a, I struggle with the exercise thing all the time too. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. exercise that, that is the hard one for me. I also wear a Fitbit and I'm always taking off my Fitbit. <laughs> so I, I really understand that. <laughs> yeah. It's great when you're on a good run and you're like checking it every day and being like, yes, I'm achieving yes. all my targets. But as right. soon as you're not, it's just this constant reminder of your own. That's favorite. right. That's right. <clears throat> might lock it that's in a right. drawer. <laughs> I love that. Um, Pun it, punish it, right? Punish, punish it, it yeah. for, yeah, yeah. For, I'm never going to charge you again. That's right. <laughs> um, Ruth, tell me your sixth piece of advice. I'm intrigued okay. by this one. Yes, the, the sixth piece of advice, it, it's going to sound like it contradicts the first piece of advice. The first piece of uh, advice yes. was, was do no harm. And the sixth piece of advice is kill the angel in the house. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, so I need to explain this a little bit. Killing the angel in the house. This was Virginia Woolf's advice in a uh, talk that she gave to a group of women professionals. She was talking about, you know, being a writer and what was necessary for her as a woman journalist, um, and particularly a woman journalist who is reviewing reviewing books by men. Mm. You know, she said that what was necessary was to kill the angel in the house. And, and what she meant um, by that was, you know, the, the good daughter, the good wife, the one who uh, obeys all the rules and who is deferential to men and who is always thinking about other people's feelings first before, you know, considering her own truth. Mm. Uh, the one that is the, you know, the inner censor, the inner judge, the inner perfectionist. Uh, for me, it's it's very much the inner perfectionist. It's for me, it's the part of me that has socialized is been socialized to you know to be good, to be the good girl. And and a lot of that for me is is you know my mom is my mom is Japanese, so there's the the expectation of being a good Japanese girl, you know, mm. <laughs> which is which is even more intense, right? And so you know, in order to be a writer, to be a novelist, to be an artist, um, I've really had to come to terms with you know with this persona in order to write and certainly in order to publish. You know, Virginia Woolf talks about killing, you know, killing the angel in the house with her ink pot. But I think if I don't, if I recall, you know, the angel does keep coming back to life. And I've often found that to be the case. So instead of killing the angel in the house, um, I negotiate with the angel in the house. And we had a, we, you know, we had a long talk and, and we do this periodically, you know, and mm-hmm. w- it turns out that the, that my angel is really just trying to protect me. You know, she's trying to keep me from, from taking risks and from making a fool of myself. And so we've come to an understanding over the years. And now when she starts fretting and flapping her wings around, you know, about, um, I, I take a moment to listen to her, you know, I listen to her concerns. It's like, you know, 
yes, I, I get it. You know, you, you don't want me to write this passage because, you know, it's risky and people might not like me and that could be, that would be terrible. But then I, you know, sort of assure her that I've actually got the situation under control. And um, then she relaxes and folds her wings back up and goes to sleep. <laughs> It sounds like you've got a very healthy relationship with your angel. Well, I'm, you know, I'm 66 and I've been doing this for, you know, quite a while now and we've come to an agreement. Do you think it's important that she's still there though in terms of just not being an asshole in life? Like if you didn't have her at all, would you just be, would you not have that? kind of moral compass. Yeah, I think that's actually really true because, you know, in a way it's the angel in the house that's responsible for, you know, the the first piece of advice, do no harm, you know. Mm. She's the one who who is uh, responsible for the second piece of advice, you know, don't get angry, get curious. Um, she's, a, she's not a malevolent presence. She can be a benevolent presence and often is, tempering, um, you know, my kind of wild anarchic, you know, <laughs> side, right? Um, and, and so I'm, I'm grateful to her. But on the other hand, you know, there are times when she just really needs to shut up, you know, and, and so. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you've shared such great advice with us today and we're coming to the end. But before we, um, we say goodbye, I'd like to ask you to tell me a piece of bad advice that you've been given in your life that you maybe only now realize is bad advice. Sure. I think the worst piece of advice ever is don't apologize. Um, that just seems to me to be advice that that lawyers give, mm. right? Immediately, that makes it, I think, suspicious. Um, it's a piece of advice that's based on, you know, on a litigious frame of mind. Um, and I'm sure that there are times when, when that piece of advice is, you know, is appropriate. But I would say that most of the time, it's, it's not. I find, especially in my relationships with friends and, and other people, that, you know, the f that I'm usually the first to apologize because, uh, you know, I, in relationships, it's everyone's fault, right? And, um, and even if it's not my fault, so what? You know, mm. what harm does it do to apologize? You know, uh, apologizing is, is actually a, a good practice. You know, <laughs> it's a very good, pra it's a very good thing to practice. Yeah. What do you think makes a good apology? Because I feel like as a parent, there's a classic I say to my daughter all the time when she's telling me off, I'm sorry you feel that way because she's making me apologize for things that are absolutely just <laughs> irrational, mad, four-year-old things that she wants me to apologize for. But is there such a thing as a good apology? You know, that's a good question. Um, often, you know, in my mind, the apology is, I'm sorry. And then the unspoken part is, you feel that way, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, I try not to say that part. And I try to say the first part with as much, you know, sincerity as I can, you know, with the understanding that certainly some of this is my fault. And maybe I don't know what part of it is my fault. But it, I think I'm sorry if I've done something that's hurt you, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's sincere, you mm. know, and it will always be sincere. Yeah. Another bad apology is like, I'm really sorry, but, and then you go on to sort of justify it and say why actually you're not at all sorry. I think if you're going to apologize, you just need to 
end yeah. it after I'm sorry. That's right. There, there, there can't be a but after that. Yeah, exactly. I, I completely yeah. agree. <laughs> Ruth, it's been fabulous talking to you and congratulations again on the very, very well-deserved win. Um, and thank you so much for your life advice. It was truly inspirational. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Lottie. Thanks for joining us for another fantastic episode of Grazia Life Advice. Apologies again about my microphone problems. And talking of apologies, if you know anyone who would benefit from Ruth's advice about learning how to say sorry better, then make sure you share it with them. Any shares or recommendations from you really help us reach new listeners. See you next time.